Good morning. I, um, it's my tradition on Sunday mornings to get up and uh, I dress, get ready, uh, put on my black uh, pea coat, and I walk down to a donut store that's about a mile away from the house, and I use that as a prayer time and also to consume a delicious donut. And it was so cool this morning, I got outside the door and it was all foggy, and um, my mom is from Kirkcaldy, Scotland. Uh, or was, and she's in, with the Lord right now. But it looked just like a Scottish summer morning today. And I was here, walk, I had my black pea coat on and walking down the street, and I felt like, man, I'm back in Kirkcaldy, Scotland. Just uh, amazing, amazing weather patterns that we have here in Dallas. You just never know what you're getting, right? Yesterday we had um, McRae and, and Will uh, Hader got married. Some of you were there. Some of you watched it online. And uh, what a beautiful ceremony, you know, and just to have this, this young couple that are just madly in love with each other. It's been about six months with them in marriage counseling. We meet about a couple times each month, and I, I enjoyed so much being around them. I says, maybe we'll work in a few more sessions so I can have you in my house. And um, we had just such a great time uh, getting to know each other, but uh, there's the joy you know, of a, of a newlywed, a newlywed couple. Many of you uh, who are married here today experience that same joy when you walk down the aisle and, and you're standing there and you're reciting your vows and it's so fresh and it's just so wonderful. And yet, what happens when, you know, from, from that moment to, you know, five years, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years down the line? And, and why do we need to even worry about um, infidelity or adultery. You know, what, why is it such an issue? What happens to a couple, you know, after they have uh, pledged their life to each other? And that's really the, the topic of today. Um, a systemic problem, definitely, in, in, in the United States. Um, in a recent article about infidelity and using data from the Census Bureau, um, this organization cal- calculated the, the, the cities that are high on the list for infidelity or adultery and the cities that are, are, are low on that list. And it favored the pauper's relationship. Uh, they looked at marriage, divorce, separation rates, and surveys and everything. And, 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 and their conclusion, and this was in the article, that while most assumed that uh, bigger cities probably produce more cheaters per capita, the, the data shows us what we were already aware of, that cheaters are everywhere. Cheaters are everywhere. Um, and so uh, the, the people that were part of this study, and Amy Pritchett and another gentleman, uh, presented the rankings on a website which offers and solicits dating advice. And, and I'll say right off the bat that um, the definition of, of cheating and infidelity today might be different from what it was just 20 years ago with all the technologies and all of the bizarre things that go on that uh, we won't talk about. But anyway, suffice to say, um, what do you think the number one city is? Probably somewhere in California, right? All of you Californians, and I'm from California. I, was, I, I've, I left all that wickedness. It's, it must be in California, right? Um, no, uh, Dallas, right here. Dallas. And, and guess who comes in a, a close second? Fort Worth. And guess who comes in a, quote, close, uh, a third? Houston. Um, so just uh, belabor the point. Um, who do you think is the lowest? In, in infidelity rates. Well, um, Pasadena, California, Torrance, California, Roseville, California, Visalia, California, and 
Orange, California, along with uh, Laredo, Texas. Anyone from Laredo, Texas? No, no hands. <laughs> That's why. And Montgomery, Alabama. Montgomery, Alabama, by the Tallapoosa River. Uh, we lived there for four years. And then McAllen, Texas, has, has a lot. So I, I'm kind of giving, I'm saying all this just to, to make a point. And if we look at the demographics, where do you think it takes place? So it's got to be Gen X. It's got to be those young bucks that get married and they, and they divorce right away. No, but back about maybe 20 or 30 or 40 years ago, it was right around 30 to 40. But guess what? It slid in this graph. It, 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 we're up to the 70 and 80-year-olds that have the highest percentage of infidelity. So it's the older folks. Me. I have an AARP card. So it's me. So I just, you know, I'm just trying to make a point, and this is how it's split apart by demographics. It's about a 16% infidelity rate overall in the United States, but men lead women, um, and then you can see it, how it's broken off. But you can see the age, that over the age of, um, you know, 70 or so, the, it's 19%. That's higher than the other, other ages. And just for... Just to let you know, those who have been cheated on or ended up divorcing out of the 53%, about 40% um, ended up divorcing. So those who committed uh, adultery, 53%, but out of all those situations, there was a 40% divorce rate. But then you look at the non-cheaters, the 76%, and there were a lot less divorces. So it just kind of shows you the relationship between adultery and divorce, that uh, people that participate in it, uh, their chances and likelihood of a divorce is a lot higher. So infidelity is painful to the person who's being cheated on and, um, and is detrimental to the relationship. The statistics show that. And, you know, it's just incredible to think about the fact that that's where Solomon is leading us today in Proverbs chapter 7. Uh, these sobering statistics take us to that chapter. And there are over 60 references in the Bible to um, infidelity, adultery. Infidelity is kind of a kind word, isn't it? I think we'll just call it adultery, right? And, and, and like problems, they're related to sexual wickedness, uh, things that take place outside the marriage, you know, sexual activity uh, outside the marriage bed. You know, Proverbs has already addressed that problem, right? In chapter 2, we've already talked about it. In chapter 2, verse 16, uh, to deliver you from the strange woman. Uh, Proverbs 5, 1 through 5, for the lips of the adulteress drips honey. And that was in verse 3. Uh, to keep you from the evil woman, Proverbs 6, verse 24, that uh, Brian uh, has covered in the past. You know, don't be deceived by her beauty, verse 25. The first mention of adultery is, where would you think it would be? In the Old Testament, when God says, thou shalt not commit adultery, the Ten Commandments. Exodus 20, 14 is the first mention of the word adultery. And yet the Bible carries that word on through the restating of the law, Leviticus, if there's a man who commits adultery with another man's wife, what was going to happen to both if they were both guilty or culpable in that situation? Physical death. And that's what the law demanded. In Numbers 25, 5 through 9, um, Moses talks about the fact that 
you know, there was a, a situation where a man comes into the camp with a, with a Midianite wife, right? And, and, and so Phineas, what does he do? He goes to the tent and he, he spears them both because of the implications and the seriousness of what happened with the sins of uh, Balaam and, and what happened at Baor. So the, the, the Bible is riddled with it, but it doesn't stop in the Old Testament, does it? Matthew 5.27 kind of amps this whole discussion up to, you know, Solomon is discussing this with his son, and we're going to cover that. But Christ kind of amps this whole thing up to a point where we all need to be concerned about it. Certainly these statistics show that, right? But, but he says, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery. So, so we need to really t pay attention to what's being said here. So this is a very sobering passage, but yet I want to overlay the template of even the wedding yesterday, you know? And, and with Christ and with the Word and just basically what Brian had focused on before, that we need to enjoy the, the wife of our youth. And for those of you who are married, we need to, to make decisions each and every day which, which fosters and which just really um, magnifies that relationship of the wife that we have. And it, so it's really imperative that we, we are on the offensive and we do all of those things to nurture that relationship, husband and wives. And the other thing I want to talk about today is this is Solomon addressing his son, right? But, but this is really Solomon addressing his daughter, sons. It's really God addressing both men and women, we all have to realize that the scenario today is going to be a naive young man who happens to be in the wrong place at the wrong time, right? But switch it. It could be very well looking out that window and a woman misbehaving in the same way. So let's not just look at the guys and say, okay, this is good for the guys and the women just kind of sit back and, you know, and text and do other things. No, this is for all of us. This is for all of us, and we need to take Christ's words seriously. And adultery goes on throughout the rest of the Bible. Even Second Peter chapter 2, verse 14, it says that false teachers have adultery on their mind. And, and even in the Jezebel in Revelation 2.22, that she commits acts of uh, adultery. So it's, it's really important for us to understand this is really important. So why should the father or mother be anxious to instruct and direct a son or daughter in life's journey because we've all seen, right? Life is hard. You know, we can't even watch a Super Bowl game and then been inundated with this sexual junk at halftime where we have this female singing and all she's doing is just espousing this, this, this sexual innuendo all the way through. So it's not even a family show. And we all knew that. I mean, you know, and we speed through that. But the point I'm making is that we can't even turn on the TV set to family entertainment. And that's what our families are exposed to. And that's why we have to be on the offensive with this. Mike Fabara says this in, in his book about men, fathers, mentoring their sons. He says, long before your children feel sexual desires, our culture will throw images, ads, billboards, and storylines his way as though... They already do. Uh, the glitzy and glossy presentation of the food of sex uh, will be shoved in their faces years before they have an appetite for it. Even with the best parental protections that we do on the offensive, there will be plenty that your children encounter that at some point will need explanation from you. 
And so count on it. Let's plan on it. So this text is talking about a father and a son, a father and a daughter, dads, moms, in our, in our families. But understand, too, and that, that actually spills over to our spiritual relationships to the family here in the body of Christ. But it also pertains to me as I'm a single now. So I have to be careful. And so I have to follow this advice as well. So, and, and we all do. And, and that's really important. So let's read the text, okay? Uh, Proverbs chapter 7. My son, keep my words. Treasure my commandments within you. Keep my commandments and live. And, and keep my teaching as the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Say to wisdom, you're my sister or you're my wife is really the implication there. You're my wife. Uh, and call understanding your intimate friend that they may keep you from an adulteress, that they may keep you from the foreigner who flatters with her words. For out of the window of my house, I looked out through my lattice and I saw among the naive and discerned among the youths. A young man lacking sense passing through the street, near her corner, and he takes the way to her house. And in the twilight, in the evening, in the middle of the night, in the darkness, and behold, a woman comes to meet him, dressed as a harlot and cunning in heart. And she's boisterous and rebellious, and her feet do not remain at home. She's now in the streets, now in the squares, and lurks by every counter, corner, so she seizes him and kisses him, and with brazen face she says to him, I was due to offer peace offerings, and today I paid my vows. Uh, therefore I have come out to meet you, to seek your presence earnestly, and I found you. I've spread my couch with coverings, with the colored linens of Egypt, and I've sprinkled my bed with myrrh, alloys, and cinnamon. Come, let us drink and fill our love until morning. Let us delight ourselves with caresses. For my husband, he's not home. He's gone for a long journey, and he's carried the money bag with him. Yeah, full moon, he'll come home. So we're safe. No one will know. With her many persuasions, she entices him with her flattering lips. She seduces him, and suddenly he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter, as one in fetters to the discipline of the fool. Until the arrow pierces through his liver, as a bird hastens to the snare, so he does not know that it will cost him his life. Now therefore, my sons, listen to me and pay attention to the words of my mouth. Don't let your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths, for many are the victims that she has cast down, and numerous are her slain. Her house is in the way to Sheol and descending to the chambers of death. Well, that's the passage. Um, if we look really quickly, look at all the positive uh, urges to seek wi wisdom's call. If you go back to verse 1, keep my words, treasure my commandments. Verse 2, keep my commandments, uh, keep my teaching as the apple of your eye. Bind them, write them, say and call. Verse 5, that you may keep you. Verse 5, that they may keep you from the foreigner, keep you from the adulteress. I looked out the window. I looked. This is kind of a positive situation. This is the warning. I looked. I saw and discerned. All positive thus far. Until the end, verse 24, my sons, therefore, listen to me and pay attention. What about the negative? Look at all the negative. There's 15 kind of positive allusions here to doing what's right. Go on the offensive. Listen to me. Apply wisdom. But look at the negative. 
It's far more weighted in that direction. Look, in, in verse 5, uh, to keep you from her who flatters with her words, verse 5. And then a young man lacking sense, passing near, he takes to the way of her house, verse 7. That's negative. And behold, a woman comes. She's dressed. She's cunning in heart, verse 10. She's boisterous, rebellious. She lurks, verse 12. And 13, she seizes him, kisses him, brazen face, says to him, works on his mind with, with that emotional moment. Therefore, I have come out, verse 15, to meet you, to seek you, to find you. I spread my couch. I sprinkle my bed, verse 17. Come, let us drink, verse 18, with delight, with caresses. Verse 21, many persuasions she entices him with her flattering lips and seduces him. He follows her. Verse 25, do not let your heart turn aside, turn astray. There's almost like almost 25 negative urges to forsake wisdom's call. So this is really important stuff. There's one benefit in all of this, and it's, it really unpacks and includes everything. In verse 2, live. Keep my commandments in what? Live. And that includes your whole life. That includes the physical consequences of, of, of following this path. Um, in the Old Testament, it meant death. But it certainly, in our culture today, it could be, you know, it could be AIDS. It could be uh, physical problems in, in, in relationship to having sex outside of marriage. But then think about the spiritual ramifications here uh, that we just read. That it's someone who doesn't know Christ or is just flirting with maybe a faith and isn't not, is not in, in Jesus Christ, the, the, the damning if you will, consequences of, 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 of going into that, that um, ship, um, you know, graveyard. So th that word live is, is really packed with so much. Well, here's our theme statement. Uh, the fear of the Lord, that's the portal, isn't it? That's what we have to go through. We have to have the humility and the fear to be able to take these things in God's word and apply them in our life, Right? And so it begins with the fear of the Lord, and that's our theme statement. Uh, beginning of knowledge, beginning of wisdom, but the fools despise. So we're going to have two paths here today, and, and, and there's the, the right path and the, and, and the wrong path. Here's our outline. You've seen it many times, and, um, and it's really the contrast between good and evil, the first nine chapters, and then we're going to get into the different themes, work, anger, uh, um, pride, folly, and we've already covered one of those, but we'll continue on until we get to chapter 30 and chapter 31. Here are the key verses. One's not in this chapter, but I thought it was very important. Keep my words and treasure my commandments within you. Keep my commandments and live, and keep my teaching as the apple of your eye. Those are the first really introductory verses of this chapter. And this is what we don't want to lose sight of. This is going on the offensive, right? This is going to keep us from following that other path, being proactive with, with this area. And but actually, you could substitute any type of a, a sin that has a hold of your life, right? So he's chosen this. This, is, this probably trips up most people. But there are other sins out there that uh, pride and ambition and, and other things that, that might be a hold of someone, we, have, we, we, we approach it the same way that um, these first verses say. 
And then the other one, he who commits adultery with a woman is lacking sense. This was from our last message. He who would destroy himself does it. So those are really the, the two ends, right? The two different paths that we talk about. Wisdom is really the cure. The cure is the word of God. The cure is the Holy Spirit of God. The, the cure is the fact that we have everything pertaining to life and godliness in Christ Jesus. It's just a matter of, of, of putting it to practice. I'm not going to go back to Proverbs chapter 6, but if you want to get a really good foundational approach to 7, we start with Brian's message two weeks ago, and that really lays the foundation of what we're going to be talking about today. The overall theme is the same. This is, you've seen this slide before. is the fact that we need to trust and obey. The portal is starting with humility, right? But then it's going to Proverbs and, um, and trust in, the, in the Proverbs 3, 5 through 6. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Trust in God's word. And do not come up with your own synchronistic type of a theology that mixes uh, error with truth. Don't lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him. But, but obey God as your practical authority. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. And that's a promise. And so that's really our portal. That's what we go through to basically not end up where this man ends up. In our sanctification, we talked about this before. It's, it's hard work, isn't it? I mean, we have everything pertaining to life and godliness in Christ Jesus. We trusted in Christ, Ephesians chapter 2. We didn't work our salvation but when we came to Christ, it cost us everything as far as our life, right? In our sanctification, right? We, we, have a, we have to kind of contribute to the keeping. You know, like Jude says, we need to keep ourselves in the word. We need to keep ourselves in the love of Jesus Christ. But it also says that God will keep us. So there's this kind of the dualistic thing in our sanctification, in our Christian growth. And in 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, But we all with unveiled face beholding in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed in the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. So our sanctification, we're, we're growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's a process, Right? where God gets more a hold of us and these areas in our life that can trap us. And that's really where Solomon is coming from here. We're going to look at the, the, the different steps. There's really five really segments in this passage. We start with the plea, the problem, the perspective, predicament, and the plan. So we need to, to treat chapter 7 as a holistic package, Right? And we need to dig into the, the text. Solomon starts with his words, his commands, his teaching. So it's kind of a mixture of not only the word of God, the Old Testament, but he's saying, practically speaking, these are the things, and this is how it looks in, in real life. So we have kind of a mixture of not only Solomon's uh, and the Lord's teachings in the word, but we have this, this broad approach and for us, we have the New Testament. We have all the things that Jesus added and the apostles added to this subject. And we can take all that, package it, look at, prayerfully look at it, examine our own lives with it, and then make the appropriate decisions. That's what chapter 7 is all about, making those right decisions. So the plea, wisdom really preserves one from sexual sins. Uh, sexual sins that are outside the marriage. So let's make this generic, okay? Let's just talk about adultery. Let's talk about any type of, of sexual sin because we can do that. 
So, so in the first five verses, my son, um, he says, keep it all. Take your commandments. Take the word, and may it be the center of your attention. That's what apple of your eye is. If you look at verse 2, keep my teaching as the apple of my eye. That's the pupil. That's the center. Uh, the eye might be in most of our priority scheme, probably the most important organ that we have, right? And, and what do we do? We have an eyelid, and it, and it basically keeps it lubricated, and we protect the eye, right? And basically what Solomon is saying here is that you want to take God's word and protect it and, and make it a part of your life. Make it at the center of your life. The pupil, the center of the eye, is the most sensitive and carefully guarded of the human body's exposed organs. It's interesting, in Deuteronomy 32.10, um, uh, our Lord uses the same expression uh, with, with Jacob in the desert and how God protected him. And I'll read the verse. Deuteronomy 32.10. He found him in the desert land, in the howling waste of the wilderness. He encircled him, and he cared for him, and he guarded him as the pupil of the eye. Very, very important organ. And, and, and then bind them on your fingers. So this is not just like putting a little, you know, how many of you have, I can't forget that, so I'll put a little rubber band. Any of you do that? Where you have something, or you write on your hand so that, oh, I won't forget that appointment that I have with Daniel for Friday for lunch or whatever. And so I write it on my, have you ever done that? I think it's beyond that. I think that the, the allusion here is to a ring, probably a seal ring, and, and, and which appears to have been commonly worn by men at that time. And the hands are always in sight, right? So you have this ring, and it reminds you. This is a ring that my wife gave me when we were in Alaska. So whenever I look at it, it reminds me of a very, very precious time that we had in Alaska. And, and, and it's the same way, but it's more than that. It's not just a reminder. That's external. That's scaffolding. That, that won't work, you know, when we're in a temptation. So we go on, and... and and, and we want it to be in our hearts. So Deuteronomy eleven eighteen 18 says, You shall therefore impress these words of mine, what? On your heart, your emotion, your mind, and your will. And that's where it has to impregnate. That's where it has to seep down too. Now, it's good to have reminders, right? Uh, but ultimately, we're, we're looking at a, a, a transformation of the inner being. And then that's going to affect in the decisions, affect the decisions we make. Write them on the tablet of your heart is basically what he's saying. Bind them on your fingers, but really the focus is the tablet of our hearts. And that's where this has transformation. Any of you in here don't know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, this won't work. <laughs> you, you need to, 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 to confess. You need to go to the foot of the cross and say, Christ, I, I love you and I, I love what you did on the, you need to have faith in what he accomplished on the cross. You need to put your faith and trust in him. And, and make him Lord of your life. And, and at that moment, the Holy Spirit comes into your life. You're baptized with the Holy Spirit, as 1 Corinthians 12, 13 says. Now you have the capability to live and to do exactly what Solomon is asking his son to do. Because we've been transformed by the renewing of what God did in our heart. Look at verse 4. You are my sister. In the Hebrew, you are my wife is basically what it's saying. How you treat your wife is how you should treat wisdom. And the instructions in God's word. Sister was considered an intimate relative. In the Song of Solomon, in Song of Solomon chapter 5 verse 2, Solomon refers to his bride as sister. So it's really, really important that we, um, 
that we look at that. And, and not only your sister, but your intimate friend or your kinswoman is the Hebrew there. A kinswoman, everyone, all the women now, you went through youth, uh, Ruth last year. Kinsmen, that's from Ruth, chapter 2, verse 1. Now, Naomi had a, a kinsman of her husband, and that was Boaz. It was a relative, it was a close relative. So it's saying with wisdom, not only do you remind yourself of it, written on your heart, but make it your intimate kins, kinswoman in this case. So remember the portal of wisdom, humility, and receiving the complete word of God. You know, Proverbs 3, 5 through 7. Remember James chapter 1, humility, receive the word implanted in, in James 1, 21. And remember that we need to look intently at the perfect law and abide by it, not becoming a forgetful hearer externally, but an effectual doer. And a man, as James says, will be blessed in everything that he does. So that's the plea. What's the problem? What's the problem? Um, that may keep you from the adulteress. It's just a statement to keep you from the foreigner, to keep you from that person who flatters with her words or his words. Okay, let's make this open to men and women. Let's flip it, okay? Let's, let's have, let's, this is an adulterous man seducing a woman, okay? Or a woman seducing a man. It's interesting, is this not just a harlot, but it's a wife in this situation. So there's almost a double problem here. So not only um, do you basically partake in, a, in an invitation of a harlot, but in this case, not only are you violating God's standard for sexual relations, but add to it, you're violating the covenant that this woman made with her husband. So it's, it's worse. It's not just going into a harlot, but it's going into a, a woman that has a, a covenant with a man. So this is really serious stuff. It's beyond a professional prostitute. It's, it, it, the text here distinguishes that from, uh, uh, from an unchaste married woman. And the one who commits adultery is more guilty of the two because she is now going to violate, you are going to, I am going to violate the marriage vow if I enter into this relationship. That's what the problem is. So what's the perspective? Um, you know, this whole chapter reads like an eyewitness account, doesn't it? I mean, it's like, you know, did, did this guy go out and, and have a relationship with a married woman, and now the husband's come back to town, he finds him, and he's taking him to court. And he's saying, this guy violated the marriage, and I want you to do something, Solomon, about it. Maybe Solomon, maybe it was that situation. And so Solomon had to interview this, this guy. And so now he's going to recount to us, this is sanctified imagination, there's nothing um, in a commentary that will tell you this. So this is me. But, but, but Solomon has, there's so many details here. It's almost like he's actually seeing something. And then he's actually taking that story and now telling his children. This is, it's, it's phenomenal. But there's, there's so much detail in it. It's almost like it actually happened. And he's basically retelling the story. This was on the, you know, the, the 7 o'clock news in the evening. And, and he's taking it and, and applying it to this situation. The windows of an oriole in a house didn't have windows on it. They didn't have the glass. So they would have some sort of protection like iron bars or everything or maybe a wood type of a covering or even maybe a board that just blocked the whole window. But it would be open. So when he's looking through the lattice, just imagine, you know, maybe looking through the metal bars 
or whatever. And so that's, that's really the scenario. This points to the naive. I saw among the naive and discerned among the youths. You know, most of the commentators say this guy is not going after sexual favors. He's just out there wandering aimlessly. But I personally think that he has in the back of his brain, um, just he's flirting with something. He's, he's on the website. And he's saying, oh, I don't have to worry about this website. I know there's some pornography on it, but I'm going to avoid that. I think that's what's going on here. I think he's in the wrong place at the wrong time because he's flirting with something. He maybe wants to see something. I, that's my, but that's just me. I think there's more. I don't think this guy's as innocent as, as what the commentators want to make him. But that's the perspective. So, the predicament, and we're going to spend a lot of time in the predicament. This is incredible. He, you know, we looked at the, the plea and the problem and the, the perspective, the eyewitness account, and now it's a predicament. So he is a young man in verses, um, you know, down to 7b. He's lacking sense. He's pa- in verse 8, he's passing through the street near her corner. So I, like I said, I think he's flirting with the situation. One of the, one of the Seleucid-controlled um, allegorists, his name is um, Ben Sira. He's a Hellenistic Jewish scribe. And so he wrote on this passage. And this is what he says about this passage as an instruction to his children and to those that he's mentoring. He said, do not look around the streets of a city or wander about in the deserted sections. Turn away your eyes from a shapely woman. And do not gaze at beauty belonging to another. Many have been seduced by a woman's beauty and by its passion is kindled like fire. He goes on. He says, never dine with another man's wife or reveal with her at wine or revel with her at wine. I'm sorry. Or your heart may turn aside to her and in blood you may be plunged into destruction. Amazing. This is just a commentary on this passage. And look at the night. It's in the dark of the night. Did you see the thing? He actually has four references tonight in verses uh, 9. In the twilight. So this is right when the sun goes down. Uh, in the evening. This is like, you know, maybe 7 p.m. Uh, in the middle of the night, midnight. And that word in the Hebrew is the same word for middle, apple of the eye, the center. That's the same Hebrew word. In the center of the night. Uh, the dark of the night, in the darkness, it's literally the center of the night, even darkness. So she comes to meet him. So he's definitely in the wrong place at the wrong time, right? This guy, this naive guy is just making decisions and he's just wandering aimlessly. But he happens to be right there where all the harlots are and where all the adulterers are. So it's probably a known section of town. And she, she's dressed as a harlot. She's a married woman, but she's technically disguised from the harlot who is unmarried. And, and she's cunning in heart. She's boisterous. She has a, a voice. You can hear her coming. And, and she's rebellious. In the Hebrew text, it means rebellious, self-willed, willful. And, and now she's in the streets. Notice that her feet do not remain at home. You know, in that culture, a, a good husband would want to protect his wife and keep her from those situations to be at home. But he's not at home either. He's out somewhere, and I can't read too much into the illustration, but, but, but her feet don't remain at home. She's in the streets, she's in the squares, and she's lurking. 
Licentious women showed themselves freely in the streets. Those are going to be the prostitutes in the squares or the open places. But this is a woman who's married. She went out. She's brazen. She's secretive. She's loud. She's intent. She probably wore a veil so no one could recognize her. And she seizes him and kisses him. But she's religious. She's a Christian, quote, unquote. Look at I was due to offer peace offerings. Hey, she's going, she's, yeah, she, yeah, I, I, I'm going out with this person. She goes to church. You know, I, I can date her because she goes to church. No, she, she's appearing to be religious, and she's doing all of the, the things according to the Mosaic Law, but she's anything but religious, right? She's offering peace offerings. This is a sacrifice offered on the altar. Leviticus chapter 7, 11 through 21 it's this, you know, it denotes an ordinary offering made freely to gain favor. You know, the, the high priest is going to take the entrails and the fat, and then that sacrifice is going to be given back to her. No refrigeration, so what does she have to do with it? She has to eat it that night. Hey, I was due to offer peace offerings. Uh, I paid my vows. Maybe. Uh, one translation or one commentator says that she was maybe going to have to pay her vows. It could be rendered, today I am fulfilling my vows. Uh, the idea that her vows are already due and she needs the money now to pay them. And I ask myself the question, you know, what is she going to get out of this? You know, here we have a naive young man. Apparently she wants something, right? This could possibly be an inference. It's not a strong translation, but nonetheless, she does tell us that the money bag is gone, right? We read that. She doesn't have money. Husband has it all. So might she be asking for money? Maybe a little bit more. Maybe there's this exchange going on here because that's what she wants out of this guy. So I have this roast, and I'm going to fix it. I'm going to have roast beef and Yorkshire pudding. That's a Scottish deal. I'm, that was a joke. Only one person laughed. That was Jean. I'm going to have this great roast meal. It's going to, man, you're going to smell it down the street. You come over. Come into my home and enjoy this food. My husband's not even here, but come. The sacrifice consisted of flesh, and it was offered in, in no refrigeration, so she had to go ahead and, you know, offer it and eat it. And she needed someone to help her eat it. Verse 15, I've come out to meet you, to present, to seek your presence earnestly, and I found you. So here is really the sexual attack on the brain. This is when she's going to start appealing to his emotions. Verse 16, I've spread my couch with coverings, with colored linens of Egypt. Uh, you can see references to myrrh and scents and, 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 and all of the perfumes that are associated with sexual activity. You can see that in Song of Solomon, chapter 1, verse 16. Oh, you are beautiful, my beloved. Solomon to wife. Uh, truly lovely, our couch is green. The idea is, is, you know, we are going to consummate this thing 
eventually. And she's actually using that same sexual terminology. I've sprinkled my couch with myrrh, with, with, with perfumes, a perfume bed. Uh, like her linen coverings, adulteress uses foreign fragrances to transform her bedchamber into an exotic, indescribable trap. She gets them first with his stomach, right? And now, with the sexual illusions. So, in suggesting that all night they drink deep of love, in verse 18, she was using a figure of speech that likens sexual relations to drinking from a fountain. And that's not going to bode well with this young, naive man. Let us delight ourselves, verse 18, with caresses. No one's going to see, verse 19, my husband's gone going to be gone for several weeks. We can do this in the privacy of my home. No one will know. She's assuring this young man. She's still appealing to the emotions. His brain is thinking. He's, he's determining, what do I do? But she's actually appealing to his emotions, which are not under correct control, right? If he had been paying attention to wisdom from the beginning, he wouldn't be there and if he were paying attention to wisdom, he would flee that situation. But she entices him with her flattering lips. She seduces him like Delilah seduced Samson in Judges 16, 15 through 18. And he was like a dumb animal, an ox being led to the slaughter this is a hard passage to interpret right here with the, 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 the deer and the arrow through the liver. Uh, the, the liver, again, is also a very vital organ in the Hebrews. So we have the pupil of the eye and the liver. But an arrow is going to go through it, and our text is going to indicate that as an ox goes to the slaughter as one in fetters, the discipline of a fool, until an arrow pierces through his liver. The idea is as if you were out hunting... And, and you had a bunch of archers there, and they wanted to, to, to kill a bird, then you, the servant would go out there and disturb the bushes, and what would happen to the birds? They would fly in the air, and then all of a sudden, all these arrows are darting, right? And they, they, they hit some of the birds that are flying, and that's the illustration we have here. This naive man will take an arrow, and he'll fall flat in death. That's the imagery here. You know, Joseph did it right, right? In, in Genesis 39, 6 through 12, he, he was doing everything right. He was living for the Lord. He was, he was being obedient. And this offensive assault comes to him, Potiphar's wife. And what does he do? He flees. He runs. He, leaves, he even leaves his colored jacket with her. In 1 Corinthians 6, 18 through 20, Paul says, flee or shun fornication. You know, run away from it. And in this particular sin, I think, is what's earmarked, that especially in this area, we just need to not flirt around, but take all of the precautions that we possibly can. I know that many of the elders have covenant eyes on our, on our, on our because we all, we, we're all capable of being this young man. And, and there's certain things externally that we should do. And, and of course, 
more importantly, we should be internalizing God's word and growing and, and, and building up those spiritual muscles. So both of those things together, I think, is what we need to do. Take the external precautions, and, and, and I hope you're doing that with your children and with their, their little phones, because two or three clicks away, they can be in some very, very ugly uh, uh, situations. So we need to be guarding. That's the external. And then at the same time, teaching them God's word and developing that so they make those decisions for themselves. And it's not you making those decisions for them. In 1 Corinthians 10, 18 through 20, we must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, pointing back to Israel when 23,000 fell in a single day. So we have this Solomon's um, expose and then all of the other illustrations, Balaam and Peor and all these other Old Testament situations that we need to learn from. Even Paul is pointing us back to this text and I believe all the other texts that, re, that, 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 that deal with sexual immorality. So he follows her, as I said, as an ox goes to its death. And that takes us to our plan, verse 24. Wisdom is valuable. It should be sought after. So it's almost like Solomon is sandwiching the positive and the negative. We don't want to dwell on the negative. We want to dwell on what we have in Christ for us in the New Testament. He uses my son and my sons frequently in the first nine chapters. And I really do believe that he's... He's also, I'm sure his daughters are there. You know, his wife is helping out, and his daughters are there. And it's not just Rehoboam, but it's everyone. It's, and then beyond that, it's you and me, as I said before. You know, since parents in ideal Jewish homes taught their children God's law, the same word, Torah, was used for both the law and for instruction. So we have both of those things going on here. In verse 25, don't let your heart turn aside to her ways, nor stray into her paths. So there are pragmatic responses that we take to this section, right? And there are also, what do we do with our hearts? And the reason for the exhortation in verses 24 and 25 is given in verses 26 and 27. For many are the victims she has cast down. Numerous are the ones she has slain. Her house is the way of Sheol, descending to the chambers of death. We have many people even in the, in the Christian community have, have fallen um, by the wayside. Sure, you know, forgiven eventually maybe or repented of their sin, but yet their ability to go back and be in those positions is completely gone because they've lost. It's like Charles Swindoll says, when you pop the integrity balloon, you just can't put that thing back together again. There's forgiveness, but um, not forgetfulness. And, and we inv invalidate our certain positions and certain opportunities that God has given us sometimes, practically speaking. David lived, right, with the consequences of his sin. He, 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 he got forgiveness, right, I mean, Psalm 51, I, I spend a lot of time in Psalm 51 with my own sins. But yet there were certain physical consequences that he was never going to be able to rid himself with. And that's why we have to understand, that's what Psalm is saying. That life is a whole thing. It includes not only our, our position, our person, 
uh, our livelihood here, but there's a spiritual and a physical ramification. And we might even hurt our own body and come down with some sort of a disease that we encountered because of that sexual interaction. We're going to prematurely die, from our perspective, prematurely die. So it comes back to that portal that I was talking about, trust and obey. And, And we need to turn to James chapter 1 verse 13 as we conclude today because I would be really not not clear and and really not helpful just to say don't pay attention to it without bringing in God's word and how it relates to our heart right and so James is actually saying the same thing that Solomon is saying, but James is saying it from the heart, from the, 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 the emotion, the will, and, and the intellect. And all of these things are part of the sin process. And, you know, you know the passage, you know, when, when someone sins, don't, don't let him blame God, but each one is... Each one sins when he's carried about by his own doing. And let me read the passage. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. And here it is. And this is trap. This is a baited trap. This is a fish going after a lure. That's the imagery here. So think about deception, but yet it's a willful deception. You're putting yourself in this situation. It's not the lure that sinned. You sinned, but you bit into that lure. Or you found yourself in that trap. And so we have to take culpability. It's not God's fault. It's our fault when we fall into sin. That's what James is saying right here. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. In this context, it's sexual sin, but you fill it in. Whatever your weakness or propensity is, I I believe that we all have a certain propensity or certain weakness that we have to be careful about and we have to guard ourselves with. Many of us have a weakness here or could have a weakness here if we let it control ourselves. But each one is tempted when he's carried away enticed by his own lust. Then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Doesn't that sound similar to what Solomon is saying? The same thing. So that really takes us to, um, well, I already said, the four kinds of people responding to the fear of the Lord. And I already said, if you don't know Jesus Christ, if you're in categories one through three, you've seen the slide before, you can't really battle sin. You can't. And maybe outwardly you can. Maybe you can take a pill. Maybe you can go to a, a working group. Uh, maybe you can do some external things, but you're not going to even touch the heart because the Holy Spirit's not indwelling in you. So my plea today, as I said before, is people who affectionately fear God, who are born again, who love the Lord Jesus Christ, they are redeemed. And because they care greatly about minimizing sin, which is about 99% of the people in this room today, uh, they are going to take this passage today and really carefully listen to how God's word applies personally in your own life. So I'm going to put all the implications up there, and we're going to kind of go through one by one. How do we attack sin's hold on us? 
You know, do we merely put our, our body parts on watch? You better not do that. You better not be in, you better not get on the internet. You know, is it something that we just kind of put together, some external thing? And no, it has to be a part of our life. It has to be the center of our life. We need to wake up in the morning like I do and pray to God, God, may I never do anything that's disqualifying to you today. You don't care about the past. But today, how am I going to be obedient to God today? We need to have that same passion with sin. Because if we don't, we'll be just like that naive young man just walking aimlessly. And walking at all times of the night, just kind of flirting, if you will, with, with sin. So, is this merely a physical thing? Tight scaffolding? Wise decisions to keep out of harm's way? Those are all good. But James says no. The fight of sin begins with attacking the desire even before it becomes sin's conception. Now, the imagery in this passage is having a baby, which is really appropriate in some respects. You know, a couple, they, they, they get married, like the couple yesterday, and they decide, you know what? We want to have a baby. And so they do all the things that pertain to having a baby, Right? And then the baby is conceived, and the baby grows inside the mom's womb, and then eventually the baby is born, right? That's what James is describing here in this passage. In your life's journey, understand the likelihood of being in the same situation as this naive young man. This is both a female, a male situation. It's a young, it's an old. We're in a battle are we safeguarding our emotions? Because it begins with the emotions. Did you notice this young man, it was an emotional appeal. It was, it was right at the beginning. You know, it, he was being tempted. Let no man say that I'm tempted by God. But each one is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust. That's an emotional thing, right? It's like you take your mind and you set it over here and you let your emotions kind of regulate how you're going to act in a particular situation. This is a young man liking, lacking sense. This can happen to us. Do, are we discerning the situation we're in? Did, did this young man perceive the fact that he was in a situation that he should have ran as quickly as he could from that, that corner? When we sin or transgress in a situation, it involves a series of sinful decisions. That's the number two on this. You realize it's not just one sin. You know, and I'll tell you, pragmatically in my own life, there's usually a series of sins that you make. I'm going to, I don't need to worry about that, but deep down in the conscience, I do want to see a little bit of that or whatever. And so it involves, I'm going to make a compromising decision here, and then I'm going to make another compromising decision. Then I'm going to make another compromising decision. And what happens um, we, it's an ox that goes to the slaughter. But well before that ox went to the slaughter, there were a number of decisions that that man made that would have prevented him from being in that situation. That's what I'm talking about here. Most temptations, most, not all, but most involve a long series of sinful decisions. And I'm speaking from experience. Because I'm in this too. We're all in this. We're all in this together. We're all in this together. His emotion is leading him to being in the wrong place and definitely the wrong time. Wisdom's crying out and telling us that we need to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. Wisdom says, this could happen to you if you neglect me. Don't be naive. That's what, what wisdom is saying. 
Paul is saying in Romans 12, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to morality, impurity, passion, evil desire, greed, which amounts to idolatry. And he says, don't put yourself in that situation. You're a new creature in Christ. In Romans 12, 1 and 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That was Colossians 3, that previous passage that I, that I read. Those are all New Testament warnings. And it takes us to number three. The sin involves the entire heart, the mind, emotion, and will. And we, need, we understand that, that the heart includes all of that, that sin begins. So we need to have our emotions controlled, right? And so we need to talk to ourselves and say, no, this is wrong. I'm being enticed here, but, you know, going to those passages in the New Testament, praying before God, and that's the first thing I think when I'm sitting down with individuals and saying, well, did you pray to God about this? Well, no, I didn't. I read so-and-so's book on it, and I did this extra. Why didn't you go to the throne of grace? You know, why didn't you go before God and just confess to him, I'm having a hard time right now, Father. I, I need your protection, and, and, and that's sometimes the last thing we do. Sin's hold begins with the emotions. I remember a man telling me that he divorced his wife because he, God owed him something more. He'd been living with this woman for 21 years. She was contentious. She was rebellious. Well, he married. No one forced him to marry this woman. But this man told me that I deserve better and there's this woman over here, and she's godly, and she reads the word, and we can really grow. And so he divorced his wife after 23 years so that he could, he could enjoy this because he deserved it, is what he was telling him. So what is he doing? He's making these emotional appeals that are completely contrary to what's written in God's word. He should have been saying, okay, adultery is bad. It's wrong. I, I need to, I'm stuck in this relationship, so how can I better it? But no, he was looking outside the marriage. And by the way, he did that, and he had a miserable life for another 23 years before God took him home. And, and I legitimately believe this man was a believer. In verse 14, in James, being drawn away and enticed, the hook is baited, the trap is baited, it deceives the intellect through the emotions. The intellect looks and says, I have a right to that. That looks good. That's what my emotions are telling me. I want to feel good. I want to be joyful. So yeah, you're right. You're right. And, and then that'll meet my need. That'll satiate my desires. Certainly God has brought this woman into my life, right? It's the circumstances. It's perfect. It's God's will. And he's flirting with the poison that tempts the emotions. And what starts with the desire, the emotion moves to deception in the mind, and one believes that he has a right to it. And we believe that it's there and it's beautiful. We believe it's fulfilling. I deserve this delicacy. This is convicting to me, guys, because this is, this is what happens to me when I fail, my Lord. And we act on the deception with the mind that if we choose the wrong path, God's going to, you know, forgive us, right? But yet at the same time, I've already discussed what the ramifications are. And then next on the list, lust conceives. Again, we're back to the conceiving a baby. The mind is persuaded and, 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 and it acts. And this occurs in the will, right? The will decides. The emotions are, 
are, are causing the mind to think wrongly about the situation and then the will basically decides. That brazen kiss, you know, the emotions play with the mind. She's religious, you know, and she has this roast. You know, someone has to eat it, you know, and her husband is gone. You know, no one is going to see. It's just one night fling. See, all those things are, are wrong. There's an element of truth to it. She does have a rose. She did pay the vow. All of these things. But it's, it's deception. We need to counter the deception with prayer and with the theology that reminds us that these, these acts are wicked and that God is going to hold us accountable. Which takes us to number four. Sin will always lead you farther down transgression's path, Right? And when we decide and when we act, there is forgiveness, but it's going to take us further. We're going to have to lie more about it. What did David do? He, he slept with Bathsheba, right? And, and what was the result? He, he, he started making lies and deceptions more and more and more. He ended up murdering her husband intentionally because he wanted to cover it up. So sin always leads you farther down transgression's path. A one-night fling ended up in murder. Number five, forgiveness is always available to the transgressor. Isn't that great? Isn't that wonderful? Because some of us have gone down this path. Certainly, most of us have gone down through the path in our minds, as Christ reminds us in Matthew chapter 5, right? If we were to be totally honest with each other. And yet forgiveness is there. We can go before the throne of grace. God, I, you know, I sinned again in my mind or this thing came up. You know, it was interesting. I was preparing for a, um, one of our Sunday morning studies. And sometimes I like to get imagery, so I'll go onto Google. Now, I have all the protections on my computer. But on one Sunday morning at 3 a.m. when I'm just kind of printing up my slides, I was on the Internet Googling and I have all the restrictions, a, a, a full per, a shot of pornography came up on my computer screen. Where did that come from? It just came. I wasn't looking for it. I wasn't surfing for it. I wasn't doing any of that. And, and that's what's different about our culture today. Uh, when Solomon, you had to actually go out to that. But, but with the metadata and the technologies, I mean, he, you, buy a, you, you buy mouthwash on the Internet, and what's going to happen the next day and the next day and the next day? You're going to get all sorts of other advertisements. The metadata is incredible. The, and so they know you're out there. They know I'm out there, and, and they want to attract you. So what happened is, is if you click on this site, then I'd be immediately thrust into a pornographic site. I wasn't looking for it. And I real quick slammed the computer down. <laughs> I wish I hadn't even seen that, you know, and made sure that my, my, my protections were up on the computer. But instead of going out to the city, the city's coming to us. It's going in the privacy of our home. And we can't even see a, a regular a, a Andy and Mayberry in the commercials are just all, a lot of them are sexual innuendo, right? And, and they're basically advertising, just like James says here, to, to partake, and so we have, to be, we have to build ourselves up and assume that it's going to come to us. We can actually very easily, innocently be, find ourselves in situations that we didn't want to be in. But this culture is sexually oriented and, and people want to make money. 
and they put the two together. So we have to, they, we have to be on the offensive is really the bottom line, just to be totally honest with you. But forgiveness is always available to the transgressor. You know, create in me a, a clean heart, Psalm 51, O oh God. Renew my steadfast spirit within me. Don't cast me away from your presence. I really do believe David is actually saying, don't cast me away from your presence. Don't take your Holy Spirit away from me. I think that's his feeling, not his theology. He says, I don't want to do anything that would, 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 would take your protection away from me. And that's how we have to pray. The sacrifices of God, David goes on to say, are what? Humility, a broken spirit. And then number six, understand that you're not too old to learn these principles and safeguards. You know, especially for those of you who've come to Christ late in your life, or those of you who are really just beginning to get your act together now before the Lord. Maybe you've been that nominal Christian, and now you're really being serious. Know these are out there, but you're not too old. So let's take this scenario of a young, naive young man and make it applicable to us. There's other proactive guidelines that are out there, you know, to, for us to place a special value on sexuality. Mike Fabaris brings that out in his book for men, for their sons, and you can actually use it for women, for your daughters. God's proper context for sexuality, that sex is not bad. It's just with the marriage bed undefiled, what Hebrew says. Uh, the importance of modesty. You know, we need to instill to our, our, our men folk and our, and our young women that dress is really important. We don't want to be that baited hook in James and cause another brother or sister to, to, to transgress. Um, the problem of our world, like I said, it's everywhere. And, and it's going to even get worse in Revelation. So we need to be cognizant of that. And a willingness to answer any questions your sons and daughters may have. And not to have a shock face, <laughs> you know, when they say something, say, how did you, uh, in all, it, was, it was horrible when President Clinton, our president, was accused of certain misbehaviors in his office. You all know what I'm talking about. That's when I had to explain to both Heidi and Jonathan what was going on. What happened there? In, 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 in the White House, what happened in, with, with, with Monica Lewinsky? And, and so they were asking me that, so I had to just very, very calmly explain to them because they wanted answers of what happened with our former president and his sexual ex... ex and, I, and I preferred that not to be, but I had to address it there. But don't act surprised, just talk about it and make it a learning experience. Be willing to answer any questions your son or daughter may have. Always be available to listen, for Barris says, and guide. Answer the questions matter-of-factly. Tell your child that you'll probably come back and talk about these things again to follow up if, if these are questions pertaining to their own activity. And then number six, be proactive about discussing what future spouse should be like. This is the positive. So when mom does something really good at home, dad say, you see, John, this is why you need to seek a godly woman. Because look what your mom just did. This is, what you need to, this is what you need to look for in a wife or a husband. When you do something just really cool, a, a sacrifice for the family, that's when the wife says, see, you know, daughters and sons, this is, this is the, the ideal husband 
or this is the ideal wife. So use the, the positive things that go on in the home, you know, to encourage your kids. For those of you who are single out here, I'm single as well, you know, and, and we're going to look for a spouse. Make sure that that spouse loves the Lord Jesus Christ, that that spouse loves, would love, loves the Lord more than, than he or she would ever love you. You know, that's the woman or that's the man you want to have in your life to help you navigate through all of the arrows that are in our culture today. You know, even as an elder right now, as a single guy, I feel a little bit more unprotected not having Patty by my side. You know, I have to be a lot more careful because I'm alone and someone can make an accusation against me. And how, where's my witness? You know? So we have to be very, very careful, but, but, but accentuate the positive things that your spouse is doing. So as we peer through Solomon's window, all of us today, both men and women, young and old, let us be cognizant of what's needed to live a pure life. And on a side note, be thankful for your godly spouse. Tell your husband, tell your wife today, I am so glad that you are mine. Thank you. That you have someone that you can fulfill all of those desires that you have in a godly way. And yet beyond that, someone who is pointing you Godward. Be thankful for that. Don't take it for granted. You should love that man or that woman more now than you ever did when you walked the aisle. Women are to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modesty, and discreetly, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly goods. None of the those are all good things. Don't worry. It's not saying, you know, take off your jewelry. But what it's saying is that focus on the on, on the godliness and the submissive that comes with your role as a as a as a wife. Here are a couple books. Um, I asked Daniel what, what he would recommend. And first and foremost, we recommend the Bible. <laughs> Oftentimes we forget, well, well, read the Bible, right? I mean, these passages are incredible. I mean, we wouldn't even have to read another book if we just took what we've learned today, Proverbs 7 and James chapter 1, and really meditate on that. Wow, that alone. But we also need helps. These books are really good because they where the rubber meets the road. They're taking these passages and showing how they apply and giving us practical wisdom, which we need. And that's exactly what Solomon was doing with his son. Daniel said, finally free um, by Heath Lambert was his number one choice, or really up there, right, Daniel? Yeah, that was up there. Um, the Exemplary Husband by Stuart Scross. That's a kind of a more of a marriage book. I've taken couples through that, but it's really good as far as the anecdotal information there and the helps. Uh, Helper by Design is another one. Lou Priolo. Anything that Lou Priolo does is very practical. I mean, Grandma Fern did all his editing, and we, you know, Patty and I applied a lot of it, and he asked us to go through these things as a couple and whatnot. So he has a book on contentment, Daniel says, that's, that's really good, and there's a, a picture of it. You can take a picture of these slides. They're going to be posted on the, on the internet tomorrow, the next day. Winning the War Within, Jay Adams. That's a, that, that's a good book. Um, I, I actually like um, Fight to the Death by Wayne Mack. And I've, actually, I've taken several 
singles through that and long I've taken myself through it. So it's also a very, very good book that I've gone through and I've used it in discipleship. So these are just a few. And then, of course, for Boris, he sent me his book um, last year and says, hey, Chas, can you read this for me? It's going to go to press. It's a, and I really appreciated it. And you can actually switch the gender and go male, female in this. And this advice is just pertaining to daughters as it is men. Let's close in a word of prayer. This is a very serious subject, our Father. A very, very difficult passage to teach um, as, I, as I look at me. And as Christ uh, really amped up the applicability of this passage just in our thought life, I mean, how many of us um, are tempted to lust after a fill-in-the-blank? And so, Father, I confess before you that over the years, just uh, my... Um, sin, but yet at the same time, I confess over the years your faithfulness in keeping me from um, of, uh, being a victim as this young, naive person is in Solomon's illustration. Just help us today, Father, to reinvigorate our relationship with you, reinvigorate our, our attention to your word, and may it be fresh on our minds, and may we just worship you and allow it to, to just really fill all the different pores in our lives so that we can glorify you. We, our spiritual muscles can be strengthened and we can glorify you in the decisions we make and know when to flee when we have to flee. And we pray all these things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.